potentially with this operating environment, we're going to have better entry points in the next few months. Often it's the investors who are able to say, I'm willing to buy when most other investors are sell tends to be a little bit better. As Warren Buffett famously said, I can't say it any better, is you want to be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. Third quarter earnings season for Canada's biggest lenders saw share prices slump amid rising loan loss provisions and broader economic concerns. Yet amid the gloom, our experts parse out reasons why Canadian banks are always a wise investment for long-term investors. On today's episode, BMO Nesbitt Burns equity analyst Sorab Movahedi, BMO Global Asset Management Portfolio Manager Chris Heeks, and your host, Daniel Stanley, Director of BMO ETF Distribution and Institutional Sales, dissect the latest earnings results among the big six banks and examine what 2024 could hold for the lenders and investors. Before we hear from the team, please consider subscribing to Views from the Desk on your preferred podcast platform. And for many more ETF insights and resources, visit the Canadian ETF dashboard at bmoetfs.ca. That's BMO etfs.ca. Welcome to the 12th episode of our deep dive series on Canadian bank earnings. Today, we're covering the third quarter 2023 bank earnings announcements, and we will return each quarter on this channel to update you on the latest financial results. My name is Daniel Stanley. I'm an ETF specialist at BMO Exchange Traded Funds, and I'm joined today by my friends and colleagues, Chris Heeks, Portfolio Manager, and for all of BMO's equity and multi-asset ETFs, and Sorab Movahedi, Managing Director, Financials Research at BMO Capital Markets. Today, we're going to be covering the recent bank earnings announcements and what they mean for investors as well as the Canadian economy. As well, we're going to be looking at different ETF strategies that give you exposure to the Canadian banks. So, gentlemen, without further ado... Thank you for taking the time to join us, and, and let's get started. And, and Saurabh, we, we always start with you, and I want to do the same this time. And particularly, I'm interested in hearing about this because analysts have been revising bank EPS estimates, earnings per share estimates, lower pretty much since last June. And, and, and on our lad, last podcast, you made a comment, and I'll, I'll quote here. You said, rate hikes will hurt the banks, margins will be lower, loan demand is expected to fall, and organic earnings growth is likely to be flat. How did the banks do this quarter? And was there anything in the results that contradicts your thesis that we're in the early stages of a slower growth period for the banks? Thanks for having me back. Uh, look, the quarter, third quarter for the banks, let's stick to the six large banks. Only one bank exceeded uh, consensus or our expectations in the quarter. Uh, the other ones were misses to varying degrees, I think. Uh, and, and the bank that did beat uh, had some tax rate uh, tailwinds, right? So so the thesis that, or the, the drivers that you were talking about, you know, slower loan growth, uh, basically the higher rates hurting volumes, margins, and the like, I think that's largely intact. I think what we've heard with a louder voice from bank management teams is that they're going to focus on areas that are within their control. Well, what control they have, they have control over their risk appetite 
ultimately how much risk they're willing to take. But I don't know if that's a near-term answer to a slower earnings growth. That can have uh, some wins near-term, but it may also have some medium and longer-term implications. And in any event, may take a bit of time to play out. But the more immediate lever that banks will have, probably companies in general, but certainly banks will have, because so much of the expense space of the banks as people is to manage their headcount and their expenses. What we got this past quarter was uh, some elevated people-related severance charges and the like at the banks. And I think we got uh, indications that there will be more of those sort of uh, expenses probably in the fourth quarter. The quarter we're in, that doesn't end until the end of October. They won't report it until December. So I think that's point number one, that expenses are now very much in play. Uh, Expense management is a priority and uh, part and parcel in that will be some kind of headcount reduction. And I think Royal Bank, you know, the country's largest bank, talked about reducing FTE by about 1% last quarter with a further 1% to 2% kind of reduction in the fourth quarter, the one that we're in right now. And BMO, which which is a bank we, we work for, obviously, and we don't rate, but they had elevated severance charges. The second thing I think that's going to be interesting, and I don't know if we got out of the quarter, we obviously expect normalization in credit costs and provisioning for credit costs. So remember that we had all this really excess government support that came in to hold the economy together as in response to COVID. Um, that probably delayed what we were embarking on back in 2019 as far as a slowdown in the credit cycle anyway. And so we're starting to get the credit cycle come through with the difference that there was an ample amount of liquidity pumped in. Historically, the credit cycle seemed to have a clean peak associated with them when it comes to provisioning expense. Think of it as a Rocky Mountain kind of peak. We we are starting to seriously contemplate whether or not, you know, to stay with the mountain theme, the credit cycle this time around may look like uh, Cape Town's tabletop mountain. You know, you will have not a clean Rocky Mountain peak type that we have historically had during, uh, you know, economic cycles, but a few years of you know, higher and growing, but not spiking uh, PCLs. And so, you know, for anyone who could try and take a visual of that, perhaps the area under the curve will be the same, but the shape of the curve will mean a bit of a plateau top, a mesa of sorts, if you will, as opposed to a peak. And I think that we wonder how long it will take for that conclusion to kind of be validated, right? So we've seen a bit of a normalization in credit cards to PCL ratio, is still around the, the um, call it through the cycle averages, but uh, it, it's it's certainly drifting higher. The question is, is it going to spike or is it going to be a drift? And I think part and parcel of the, you know that's part and parcel of what sort of an economic outlook do you have? Certainly, a soft landing scenario now seems to be the the base case. And you know, I think if you're in a zero point five percent GDP growth environment. I'm not sure if that's very different than if you're at a minus 0.5% GDP growth environment. One's a recession, one is not. Both are anemic growth. And so I think those will probably uh, have to still get reflected into the estimates. We revised our estimates a little bit lower for the out years. I wonder uh, if if the, the, the sentiment towards bank stock 
certainly fundamentally will become a lot more constructive when we start looking at 2025 earnings estimates, which we haven't rolled out. We will roll out next quarter. We will have a better sense of what the exit velocity, if you will, for 2023 is going to be. I think 2024 is still shaping up to be a bit of a, you know, I would say challenged um, operating environment for the banks. Certainly, they would have some visibility into the first half of the year. And and I think the commentary is, is you know, managing expectations lower. As we start looking to 2025 and beyond, the the case uh, becomes uh, stronger. So probably a bit more than just the quarterly uh, recap that you were looking for, but hopefully it gives you a bit of a, a perspective uh, as to kind of how we are viewing the space today and over the next uh, three, six, and uh, 12 months. Thanks, sir. I love that perspective. And I love the analogy of the, the sort of peaks versus the rounded mountain, the area kind of being the same. Uh, maybe that drags it out a little longer. I, I'm curious, and, and what I love about these sessions that we do, uh, Chris Heeks, I, what I love is that it, is that we can talk about the numbers and the results, and then we can look at what the market thinks of those numbers and those results. Um, what are you seeing from the perspective? We heard the announcements were weaker uh, from the market. If you look at the performance of ZEB, which is the equal weight uh, Canadian bank ETF, Talk to us about that price behavior. What does the yield look like? And and what are trading volumes and flows on that ETF like? Yeah, thanks, Dan, and good to be here again. The price behavior largely followed the fundamental behavior, and I, I suppose that's what you want to see in a you know kind of somewhat of an efficient market. Uh, you know, with earnings generally you know a little bit disappointing to the downside. Sarab mentioned ZEB, the the BMO equal weight. Uh, Canadian Bank's index ETF, you know, kind of followed suit, was down three to four percent, kind of off of earnings. I'd say since then it's kind of trending back up. So you know, a lot of that ground that was kind of lost in that kind of one to two week span around earnings has been recovered. We had seen inflows um, as banks have sold off, which is good. You know, and it's nice to see investors recognizing the opportunity. But you know, at the same time, I think it's fair to say there are some, you know, there are some, uh, you know, somewhat more. Nervous or concerned investors, you know, if you look at the Canadian banks this year, um, now with this kind of recent recapturing of what was lost, they're about flat on the year, just up 0.7%. You know, the TSX is up 7%. Some of those growth elements like Shopify and IT helping the TSX this year. So, you know, about 6% behind the TSX. You look, you look at last year, banks underperformed the TSX by about 4%. They were down 10 last year. The TSX was down six. So you're seeing, you know, certainly uh, some concerns, I think, you know, so, we, you know, we've been working through that and, you know, I don't want to go go too heavy on the numbers here, but I thought, you know, one thing that we looked at that was interesting is just looking at, you know, we know banks as a long-term investment are, are very, very strong. And we looked at, you know, when banks have a negative year, negative calendar year, which they did last year, what's the average return the next year? And it's plus twelve percent. Obviously, we're not experiencing that this year, but that's the average over the past thirty-five years, as far as we could get the data. Now, two years, if they have two negative years, which up until recently we are tracking for a negative this year, now we're slightly positive. But if they have two negative years, uh, which only happened twice, it happened in two thousand and in two thousand nine, where they had two negative calendar years, your average return the next year was forty-six percent. So very strong, obviously. What am I saying here? Yes, we've had some kind of you know mixed operating environment challenges for sure. You know, um, you know, banks are going to be looking to to cost contain and, and try and improve the numbers on that way. Yield to your question, 
5.1% on the ZEB. Traditionally, banks over 5% is a pretty attractive level. And and I, uh, I'm i in agreement with Saurabh, and, and my preferred view is not so much the three to six month view where it's tough to forecast the challenges that are going to come, but that, you know, 2025 and beyond type view. And I think, you know, based on some of those negative price performances the past, you know, one to two years, you know, the future looking brighter on a two to three year time span, especially as we could kind of look through the the time horizon. So, um, yeah, again, with banks yielding over 5%, you know, that's that's a pretty attractive level. Certainly helps in the meantime, if banks are, you know, not necessarily having the capital appreciation, you're getting that 5% dividend and position yourself for more capital growth potentially in, in the years ahead. So that's what we're seeing. Certainly, like all equity investors, some same anxiety, uh, but you know the anxiety also creates opportunity, and and we have seen some inflows to the Canadian banks net net, which has been nice to see. It's interesting. It sounds like it is a mirror image of what Surab was talking about, where the PCL historically it sort of spikes like a rocky mountain, but maybe we're seeing a more rounded. What it sounds like is the performance of the bank equities mirror image of that maybe you know you said flat 2020 maybe it is going to be a rounded a slow but not necessarily significant drop which sort of makes sense when you look at, at a 5.1 percent yield uh, very attractive for investors to hold on to a 5.1 percent tax efficient yield uh, while they wait for that uh, flat ditch shall we call it to to gradually recover over time Amid high interest rates and market volatility, consider BMO's top three ETFs yielding over 6%. The BMO Covered Call Utilities ETF, ticker ZWU, provides exposure to an equal weight portfolio of utilities, telecoms, and pipeline companies. The BMO Covered Call Canadian Banks ETF, ticker ZWB, invests solely in Canadian financials presenting an attractive valuation opportunity. And the BMO Canadian High Dividend Covered Call ETF, ticker ZWC, features solid historical dividend growth. To learn more, visit BMOETFs.com and search for tickers ZWU, ZWB, and ZWC. Surab, I want to come back to you. Uh, you know, Canadian investors, we, we, we tend to think of the big six banks uh, as a monolith. We, we always group them uh, together. But in reality, you're very well aware of this. Um, they are quite different in where they uh, tend to allocate capital. Uh, you know, BMO and TD, as we've seen recently, tend to be focused on the U.S., RBC, very, very focused uh, on, on wealth management, global capital markets. Scotia, historically focused on the Latin American uh, market. CIBC, very focused on the domestic market. Where I want to ask you the question and where I'm curious is, do those differences, is it enough of a difference to translate into better relative financial performance over the next couple of years? It's a good question. I think, uh, you know, just to kind of go back to what Chris was saying, we do think about the Canadian bank index, obviously. So there we don't really distinguish between them. You know, just to add a little bit to the data mining exercise that uh, that Chris was just talking about, um, um, he was talking about the absolute return of the bank index. If I think about the relative return of the bank index uh, to the TSX, so the composite, um, uh, it's interesting that uh, going back to around 1970, which is the uh, the data set we kind of look at, and this is, I'll call it a bit of a data mining exercise, 
you know, three consecutive years of underperformance is uh, is non-existent, right? So we did have underperformance last year. We look to be underperforming this year. Um, so, uh, you know, and the markets being forward looking and what have you, maybe some of that benefit that we're talking about with respect to 2025 and beyond will start getting reflected in the valuations in um, in 2024, for example. Um, so it's a calendar year basis. It's a data mining. It's fun little exercise. I thought I'd give you that. But if you start kind of then disaggregating this monolith, as we call it, you know, the bank index between its, its component pieces, you know, I, I do think the differences become incredibly important if we are talking about basically strategies for growth here. So let me come at it slightly differently and say that if we have this kind of rounded mark, uh, mountaintop on PCLs, as we were talking about, if sentiment remains a bit tired, if marginal buyers of Canadian banks, if non-domestic marginal buyers of Canadian banks, which have to really first be sold on Canada, remain a bit cautious kind of on the macro, then stock price moves higher are unlikely to happen anyway near term through multiple expansion. And so the way up will have to be pushing the earnings up. And there the strategies become that much more relevant. I think banks that have made acquisitions have gone out and acquired earnings growth, I'll call it, probably are a bit more advantaged. Uh, you know, in this regard, BMO unrated by us, but uh, last long weekend would have been the actual conversion weekend for the Bank of the West transaction. So, um, you know, provided they can execute and deliver on the synergies and like that they've advertised to the market, they have some installed growth, I'll call it, because of the acquisition. Royal Bank, uh, similarly, yes, good in wealth management, but, uh, you know, the acquisition of HSBC Canada, which will probably close sometime in the first calendar year, let's call it February, March uh, timeframe. Uh, again, relative to Royal Bank, not a massive acquisition as far as an earnings growth driver, but certainly provides some earnings growth support. Whereas the others maybe, uh, you know, maybe kind of working, have to work a little bit harder, be a little bit more of a self-help story. Now, I think National Bank, as an example, may benefit from some of the disruption that will undoubtedly be caused by uh, Laurentian Bank strategic review in Quebec. You know, there's going to be disruption market over there relative to National Bank. There's going to be some opportunity to to improve on things organically. But you know, banks like TD, which are sitting with a bit of a Department of Justice type restriction on them around capital deployment and aspects of their U.S. business strategy, are probably going to remain capital rich, but not so much. Uh, you know, uh, earnings, you know, maybe capital rich earnings poor, so to speak. Um, you know, Scotiabank going through a bit of a strategic review, CIBC obviously trying to to figure things out domestically. So, you know, it gives you a sense that there will be a bit of a dis distinct disaggregation in that monolith. And I think you're already seeing that, to be honest with you, you know, if you look at the relative values, if you think about dividend yield, we talk about that a lot over here, you know, dividend yield of the lowest dividend yield national bank versus the highest dividend yield, you know, I think it's around Scotiabank or when we did this exercise a few weeks ago, you know, that yield differential is around the one standard deviation move, so to speak, relative to history past 20, 25 years. So the market is already providing some amount of uh, differenti differentiation over there. I can't speak to the ZEB, but I can tell you in our fundamental approach, we've chosen to take a bit of a 
barbell approach where we have both expensive bank and I'll call it cheap bank from a valuation perspective to, you know, um, to kind of construct a bit of a outperformance. And, you know, coincidentally, or, you know, by, by sheer luck, so to speak, uh, the two that we rate outperform National Bank, a high multiple bank from booked value, you know, dividend yield perspective, and CIBC, probably the cheapest bank now on a book value basis and one of the higher yielding ones, certainly calendar year to date, have outperformed the bank index by sheer luck. But having having kept our, you know, a, a toe both in the cheap and a toe in the high quality defensive, I think we've been able to, you know, benefit from periodic moves back and forth. Uh, I, I suspect if Chris and I are right and we're moving towards a, again, I don't want to think of the banks as a monolith, but I suspect if money starts flowing towards the banks, which I suspect will as we look towards 2025, you would expect it's coming in not to play defense, but it's coming in to play offense. I, I would I would expect that would result in a bit of a narrowing as opposed to further diverging, you know, some convergence as opposed to more divergence of those valuation multiples between the cheap and the expensive, if you will, whether it's on price to earnings, price to book, or a dividend yield. So so a bit of a you know a bit of a mouthful, but I think near term those ones that are able to show better earnings growth probably because of acquisitions or in the first instance ought to be a bit more in favor but you know taking some sort of a you know equal weighted approach probably allows you to also keep your uh, toe in the water with the cheaper ones uh, as well thanks Sarab. i think we should hire you for our product team because i think chris what do you think you think a barbell uh, bank uh, etf in the future <laughs> to complement our equal weight bank etf i think it's a great idea <laughs> Barbells are always nice, you know. That you you get you get you know they help balance each other out. So yeah, exactly. they are often good way to do it. Let's let's uh, continue on that theme. And Chris, the next two questions are for you. Uh, sorry, by all means, feel free to chime in. But I, I do want to continue on that theme because Chris, you, you're actually going to be managing uh, shortly a new long short ETF that we're going to be launching in October, which gives you some unique perspective here. Talk to us a little bit about what does the short interest look like in the Canadian banks right now? And in your opinion, what are some of the things that might either attract someone to shorting the Canadian banks and what might detract someone from the idea of shorting the Canadian banks? Short interest right now, it's it's pretty it's pretty muted overall on the big six banks. So somewhere between call it one and four percent, just under four percent. Uh, I have CIBC as the most shorted bank right now at three point six, and Scotia three percent. But you know, I'd say relatively benign overall. Now, I just want to caveat to say this data is is by no means authoritative. It's estimate. You know, it's so so uh, so. There's that, but. You know, from what we see, you know, relatively benign. You know, of course, the U.S. Uh, U.S. hedge funds somewhat infamously have taken a couple cracks at shorting Canadian banks, usually driven by you know concerns about the housing market. You know, in general, um, you know those those kinds of uh, if you want to call them attacks, um, maybe that's a little strong, but you know they haven't worked out so well as long-term trades. Um, you know, uh, the, you know, I remember in the mid-teens, I met, that was a big theme, mid-2010s, mid right? And, 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 and as we know, real estate and the Canadian banks 
kind of had a great close to the to the 2010s. Um, so that's that's one of the things that can attract them. And, and you know, conversely, by the same reasoning, I think you know banks have proven to be very solid. Not to not to beat the drum too much, but long term investment and you know high quality companies. And, you know, you tend, you know, and, and in the new strategy, thank you for mentioning long short, um, you know, the, the types of companies we want to focus on underweighting or shorting would be kind of more the lower quality companies. Um, so in general, banks don't really don't really, uh, you know, fit the general model in terms of, you know, one that you would have to have a, a large short. But um, yeah, so that's that's, uh, you know, some of the dynamics are there. Um, and uh, yeah, so. It's it's uh you know it's it's a little tricky when you're again when you want to short stocks you want to kind of really identify something that's lower quality overall doesn't tend to characterize the Canadian banks so. Um, Chris, I want to continue with the next question for you, Sarah. By all means, feel free to chime in on this one as well. This is more of a macro level. Uh, I think it was last week Bank of Canada held their rates steady. Uh, they noted that since the July rate hike, GDP growth sort of was re revised lower for Q1. Uh, it was well below expectations for Q2, uh, tracking significantly weaker for Q3. And, and yet they did say, and I'll, I'll quote them here, govern the governing council remains concerned about the persistence of underlying inflationary pressures. In my, this does not seem to paint a very rosy picture for the environment in which these Canadian banks are operating. Talk to us a bit, little bit about the U.S. banks. How are they performing? Um, more specific, are there differences between sort of the mega cap banks in the United States and the regionals? What's going on in that market? Uh, yeah, for sure. So I think there's there's definitely, you know, we saw some major differences in the regionals. Of course, in March, it was, you know, the regionals that came under heavier pressure in general and 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 saw saw you know a small handful of them fail, but they were they were large regionals. You know, the the, the complexion, as you know, the the US marking the US banking market is quite different than Canada, you know, or Canada. You, we really think about the big six primarily, and then there's a couple others kind of I suppose you could say regional on our side, um, but um, but in the U.S. it's a much more fractured market overall. Um, yeah, so the regionals came under a lot of pressure. You know, they've they've bounced back, but keep in mind they're bouncing back from from a from a larger decline. And you know, in the most recent earnings cycle, I think what we saw was some better earnings out of U.S. banks, uh, particularly the larger banks, um, and you know the so think the J.P. Morgan's the um, uh, Bank of America. So we saw in general some better better performance there. Uh, so so um, you know I think the big question though to to go back to the point of the operating environment is the macro right. And so it's this this distinction between the no landing scenario, the soft landing, and the the hard landing. And in the U.S. so far, you know consumers and employment. Uh, you know, like tight labor market have kind of kept that needle somewhere between the no landing and soft landing scenario, I'd argue. Uh, but what you are seeing, to your point, is central banks getting a little more aggressive. We just saw the ECB, the European Central Bank, uh, somewhat unexpectedly raise rates 0.25%. So they've raised rates close to 5% in about a year and a half, same similar to the U.S. And that, certainly that's going to create some economic pressure. So, so again, you know, um, 
it's 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 kind of nothing new to see kind of an economic slowdown at the end of the hiking cycle. I think as investors, we should certainly prepare for that and be aware of it. You know, having some defense in your portfolio, I think, is is um, you know makes a lot of sense right now. You also want to have probably some growth in your portfolio if we do get that no landing scenario. Um, you know, where do banks fit in? Well, traditionally, a little more cyclical. So when you, you know, that you, you have to be careful with them. But again, uh, what I think, uh, what I'm kind of interested in is what, what kind of opportunities may be presented. So um, I think, you know, on a longer term time horizon, time is your friend in the case of investing and sometimes not trading out of positions or acquiring positions over the years, building them up tends to be a good strategy. Uh, but potentially with this operating environment, we're going to have better, you know, entry points in the next few months. So, um, you know, often it's the, you know, the investors who are who are able to say, uh, you know, I'm willing to buy when most other investors are sell tends to be, you know, a little bit better. You know, as Warren Buffett famously said, you know, I can't say it any better is, you know, you want to be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. Great quote. And um, so, you know, in this environment and, you know, again, the next three to six months, a lot of uncertainty. You know, we do have the central banks, again, trying to seemingly slow down economy to slow down inflation. You know, what kind of opportunities are that going to create? And, you know, again, you know, when I think about taking risk in the portfolio, I want to take risk with uh, exposures I think are going to be beneficial over time. And I do I do think the Canadian banks are going to fit that bill. Sorry, I transitioned from U.S. banks to Canadian banks, maybe somewhere through that. U.S. banks, you know, again, just a little more risky than Canadian banks. So, so I, I tend, and I'm not sure, Sorab, if you'd agree, I tend to think of them as even more cyclical. So I would just, um, uh, I, I, you know, personally, I, I take a little bit of a cautious approach on the sizing. But again, um, I, I, you know, I think about what kind of opportunities might come and being ready to take advantage of those. Excellent. Thanks very much, Chris. Not all cash equivalents are created equal, and BMO's Money Market and Ultra Short Term Bond ETFs offer several high-quality options to park client cash. To learn more, visit BMOETFs.com and search for tickers ZMMK, ZST, and ZUS. Sorab, I want to uh, end off with a question for you, uh, a question specifically. We've talked about this issue in the past, capital ratios. You've stated in the past capital ratios were very, very healthy. Uh, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think currently Canadian banks have to keep a common equity tier one capital ratio at at least 11.5%. But there's been talk of the regulators potentially increasing that to 12%. And I think it is... is soon as December. Can you talk to us a little bit about how are current capital ratios compared to this potentially higher level? Uh, should we expect equity sales from the banks as a result? And, and how do you expect the market to react to this? It's a regulated business. The regulator primarily looks to the amount of equity capital that's on the balance sheet because, you know, if you misprice your, I mean, it's a levered business, right? So therefore, if you misprice your assets by, you decide 5%, you could wipe out your equity. The regulator usually uh, regulates you to your capital because they're worried about the depositors in the first instance. And so I think we have a very solid regulatory environment here. I think the banks are very well capitalized. The regulatory minimum today in in Canada is 11.5%. But just for crystal clarity, that includes about 3.5% of what 
let's loosely call a, a counter-cyclical buffer or a domestic stability buffer, one that basically is a capital ratio you build, essentially, as the regulator likes to call it, you buy insurance during good times so that you could actually release it uh, during difficult times so that the banks can continue to play that shock absorber type role that you need them to in an economy as it turns, you know, you want uh, loans to be flowing and, and what have you. Um, the range for this uh, shock absorber, the domestic stability buffer officially called or the counter-cyclical range, has another 50 basis points on it. The regulator in Canada reviews this every uh, six months or so, so twice a year. The next review is December, like you noted. And I think, uh, you know, the, the, the broadly speaking, certainly our working assumption is that you know, they will take it up to 12% or add the final 50 basis points remaining on the range. Uh, but still, the rule or the expectation is that that's because there's ample capital in the system, not because they're trying to force the banks to into equity sales and what have you. So I guess long way of saying, no, we don't in, in anticipate a further bump in the um, uh, capital levels for the banks through the domestic stability buffer in December to result in cap uh, equity sales by the banks, largely because they are not instantaneous. Yes, market discipline may start asking of the banks, are you within compliance? All the banks today are in the 12.2% and above. So you would say even if the regulatory minimum moves to 12%, the banks as of last quarter were already clear of that higher regulatory minimum. And the regulator in Canada has historically been disciplined by rational, right? So they don't necessarily say, and you need to comply by this next week. There's usually a five or six month period to comply, which gives a couple of quarters of internal capital generation. One of the you know, important uh, attributes of the Canadian banking system is that they are, comparatively speaking, higher ROE banks. Obviously, higher capital ratios will kind of squeeze that ROE a little bit, but there is still very good internal capital generation because of those kind of premium ROEs. And so even if a bank is close to that 12% line, assumed higher 12% line, there could always be un unforeseen circumstances, legal charges, what have you, um, there would be a couple of quarters of internal capital generation. So not worried about it from an equity issue uh, uh, perspective. But look, it, it, it's a regulated business. If the capital levels continue to grind higher, which is the phase we are going through right now, and you have an emboldened kind of regulatory environment globally post the Silicon Valley debacle in the in the U.S., uh, you know we would expect that to be a bit of a headwind on ROEs for the banks, right? So don't worry about the capital issues from a capital adequacy perspective, kind of more, worry more from a, a return on equity and therefore, you know, what it, does it imply from a valuations perspective? That's how I think I would uh, basically uh, leave it there. I think the resilience of the ROEs are good, but certainly the hard to make a case why they would be going higher from here if the denominator continues to drift higher. Guys, thank you very much. You know, I, I love these sessions. The insight from you guys, Chris, love the insight again about that the data dive that you take on. You know, in years of negative performance, you know, what kind of positive performance do you have in the following year on the banks? Uh, Sorab, love that disaggregation of the so-called monolith, and you know how uh, you know, the next couple of years are going to be driven by the individual bank's growth strategy. Really, really great insights from you both, as always. Uh, thank you uh, for doing this. 
As a reminder to the audience, you can get exposure to the Canadian banks via ZEB, which is the BMO Equal Weight Canadian Bank Index ETF. You can get exposure to our U.S. banks via ZUB or ZBK, which is the BMO Equal Weight U.S. Banks ETF. And if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to visit the ETF Center at BMOETFs.com. That's all for today, folks. Thank you for tuning in. Please join us in December for the next update on the Canadian banks. Thank you to Daniel Stanley, Chris Heeks, and Sorab Movahedi for joining us on the BMO ETFs podcast. Today, we heard about the BMO Equal Weight Banks ETF, ticker ZEB, which provides equal weight exposure to Canada's biggest financial institutions. Our experts also discussed the BMO Equal Weight U.S. Banks Index ETF, ticker ZBK, which provides an also equally weighted exposure to the biggest U.S. lenders. And finally, the BMO Covered Call Canadian Banks ETF, ticker ZWU, designed for investors seeking elevated income as well as growth exposure from Canada's major financial institutions. For more information about the other ETFs discussed in this podcast, check out the episode notes, contact your regional BMO ETF specialist, or visit the new and improved Canadian ETF dashboard at bmoetfs.ca. That's bmoetfs.ca. Views from the Desk has been brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management. The viewpoints expressed by the portfolio managers represent their assessment of the markets at the time of publication. Those views are subject to change without notice at any time without any kind of notice. The information contained herein is not and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice to any party. Investments should be evaluated relative to the individual's investment objectives, and professional advice should be obtained with respect to any circumstance. Any statement that necessarily depends on future events may be a forward-looking statement. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of performance. Commissions, management fees, and expenses, if any, all may be associated with investments in exchange-traded funds. Please read the ETF facts or prospectus before investing. Exchange-traded funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. BMO Global Asset Management is a brand name under which BMO Asset Management Inc. and BMO Investments Inc. operate.